day at the organ I was weary and ill at ease And my fingers wandered idly Over the noisy keys I know not what I was playing Hello, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. So in this episode, I'll be beginning a new series uh, that will take about 11 episodes, I think. And we'll be looking at uh, finally, um, what, four years into this podcast and finally getting around to looking at Henry James. And so we'll be starting with the very first volume of his of his novels, of which there are six. There are six Library of America volumes covering his novels. And it doesn't end there. I think it's um, um, kind of amazing, his output. Uh, I don't think any other writer published in Library of America has had this much bulk, right? I'm sure there are writers who have written more um, over the course of their lifetime, um, but they're, they're not represented as dominantly in this series. Um, I think... Actually, it's like 5% of all of the Library of America is, is Henry James' works. So he's certainly a powerful, powerful, influential figure in American literature, and therefore someone I have to read and someone I have to understand a little bit better. And I, I admit that. he's It's not a period of history that... I mean, it's a period of history that many people are weak on, right? The Reconstruction through Gilded Age. It's kind of that period of history where you got... You know, it's memorize a few presidents, but that's kind of difficult because they're not the most memorable presidents. There's no major wars except against Indians. And that's that's often footnoted. You know, it's it's the age of industrialization. Right. But it is a very interesting period. But, you know, like I gravitate more to the early 20th century, late 19th century. Um, or the antebellum period. Right. And, and th- those are kind of the periods that interest me and this becomes kind of a, a tough period to talk about you know writers like of course mark twain is of this period um and and you know he's he's very memorable but i haven't even got to mark twain so this is actually a period where i haven't covered much in this podcast if we're looking at the like the lifetime of of henry james born in uh, 1843 died in Around World War One, right? Nineteen sixteen, he died. So he, his life basically covers, his professional life covers essentially the Gilded Age, right? His first novel published, Watch and Ward, which we'll be beginning to look at today, was published in eighteen seventy one when Henry James was 27, 28 years old. Um, so his professional career kind of covers the Gilded Age into the into the Progressive Era, um, but you know, in some sense. I don't know, like, I, I won't really know till I read it, but I, I wonder if he kind of ends up like someone like H.G. Wells, who's so influential in science fiction, but by the time end of his life, he kind of became old-fashioned. But I don't know. I don't know. I've never read his stuff, really. Um, I mean, Turn of the Screw, I read that. Um, but but kind of a hole in my education. So this series is, is going to be kind of following me trying to learn a little bit about, about Henry James. Um, so let's talk about the, his, his, the mass of his work, right? So Library of America published 16 volumes. I think they're done. I think, 
I don't know if there's another volume of Henry James coming down the the road. Uh, they keep surprising me with their some of their recent publications. Some really great stuff. I I like to get back to buying. Once I'm done with China, I'll, I'll, I'll take some of the money I made, take my last bonus, and just I think buy the entire collection. What's left? Um, I think I have about 150, a little maybe 120 or so. So it'd be 200 volumes. It's uh, not not a small amount of money, but you know, if you subscribe, you get them for 25 bucks a piece. It's it's um, not the most affordable, but I think it's worth it. I love these books so much. Um, but the most recent is number 274, which is an autobiography. So I think he's done. I know he wrote some plays. I'm not sure if they're in the stories or somewhere else. But anyways, if we break up uh, into five categories, his writing as published by the Library of America, one volume is his autobiographies, and he wrote... Uh, like three or four autobiographies of different aspects of his life. As for novels, that's broken up into six volumes. Six volumes cover his novels. His short stories are five volumes, five volumes of his short stories. And I think some of things like Turn of the Screw are in, are in there because it qualifies more as a novella. Two volumes of his travel writing, one dealing with the continent and one dealing with... Uh, England, Great Britain, and America. So he was, of course, a, a big a global traveler. He became a British subject later in his life. So, but he's still an American. Uh, you know, we identify him as an American writer. And if the British want him too, that's fine. There's plenty to share when you're looking at the works of Henry James. Um, and two volumes of his criticism. Criticism is something. I have a few volumes of criticism published by the Library of America, like uh, the Poe volume of criticism, and I have, I think, one of the. James ones it's it's hard to know how to maybe I think I have both of the criticism because they're early they're published early on in the series so I have I have everything like one through a hundred I think oh, no one through 50 in their publication order I have all of them uh, it's interesting I just don't know how to really talk about them in this podcast format um, you know it's it's easier to talk about novels right and, and, and to a lesser degree, short stories. But I'm not quite sure how to handle something like that. And, and there's a lot of that that comes out in Library of America. I think it's it's great that they're so eclectic, but sometimes I'm, I'm not sure how to approach them. But if, if, if I continue this on, I'll, I'll whittle away at Henry James as I go on in the future. But right now, I'm just going to look at his first five novels. And what are they? Well, they're watching Ward first, which was... One thing I was kind of excited about getting back into, you know, kind of moving back in time a little bit is I'd have LibriVox recordings again, right? And that's true, except for this first one. This uh, Watching War doesn't have one. Uh, it's not a very popular novel of his. Henry James himself sort of uh, rejected it later on, calling Roderick Hudson his first real novel. I don't know. I don't know if you should do that. I guess he has the right to kind of self-censor. Stephen King did that with Rage, right? He said, like, don't buy this book. Don't publish Let's let it fall out of print. Um, so I guess writers have that privilege to kind of forget. I think Hawthorne tried to abolish his first book too, right? Buy up the remaining copies and destroy them. But a few survived, so we can still read it. Anyways, that's Watch and Ward. Then we have Roderick Hudson, his first novel, if you, if you ignore uh, The Failure. Of Watch and Ward. Uh, then we have the American, uh, followed by the Europeans, 
and then confidence. So it, the, the volume is 1,200 pages of text, and there's five five books, right? This is this is one of those cases where like buying the Library of America books are kind of are a good investment, right? For 25 bucks, I get five books, five books uh, that if I just bought them separately at the store, it might cost 50, right, or, or more to get all of them. So that's what's going to be coming up in this series. It'll take about, it'll take, I think, 11 episodes for, for me to do it. Uh, one of them, Europeans, is really a novella, almost. So, um, yeah, what to say. So, of course, his life, uh, oh, I guess he, we could can, we can say something about William. William uh, James was one year older than Henry James. And, of course, these two people are often seen as, as, towering figures in American uh, letters, in American writing, uh, William James being America's greatest philosopher and Henry James being perhaps its greatest writer. Um, so that's, it's, it's, a, it's a lucky family, right? So where does this family come from? Well, uh, his father was, they were wealthy. Uh, he, he had a $10,000 a year inheritance, which wasn't a small amount of money at the time. It would have been like, getting $100,000 a year, you know, just to live on. Uh, so his father, or Henry James's grandfather, was made his fortune in Albany. Uh, later on, he moved to, they moved, the family moved to New York City, which is where Henry and William were born. Um, but his father originally was, was from Albany. They, now, this family, with William James, Henry James's grandfather, was an Irish immigrant, um, who kind of was one of these revolutionary post post American Revolution uh, Irish immigrants? So a lot of these, there's like actually a wonderful book about this, and I forgot the name of the book, but it deals with these Irish Republicans. And when we think about Irish migration, we often think of like the potato blight and and that and the the Irish migration of the of like the 1840s. But you know that wasn't all of it. There were Irish who were inspired by the American Revolution saw Ireland under British rule and saw inspiration in the struggle of American independence. And so many of them came to, to the United States, right? And many of them were radicalized by their experiences in England or by watching the French Revolution or the American Revolution. And it seems this William James was one of those people. But I don't know much. I'd have to get a biography of, of Henry James to, to know about. I'm just kind of pulling this from the, the chronology. Now, from a young age, he was engaged in, in kind of these transatlantic, uh, his life was transatlantic from, you know, for most of his life. He, he's actually a figure that I think Lovecraft may have been interested in. I, I don't know if you ever studied him, but he's, you know, I'm going to keep my eyes on this because it's, it's kind of, it's hard to avoid because I've been talking so much about Lovecraft and his fascination with this Anglo-American kind of empire. Um, and yeah, there is this cultural break. There are the Emersons who say we got to kind of go our own way in, in, in America. We can't be kind of slavish to British traditions, but there's others who still kind of respected the, the broader English literary tradition and things and, and had more engagement with, with Europe. And there were many English people who continued to migrate to the Americas after the revolution. But for instance, in 1855, when Henry is only... What, 12 years old, they go to England, tour, uh, tour uh, Europe. Um, 
It's a, what does it say here? Early summer 1856, family moves to Paris. Another tutor engaged and children attend experimental Fourier school. Acquires fluency in French. Um, finally, they return to America in 1858. So they spend like three years in Europe, in, in France. Um, James gets sent to a special school called the Institution Rochette because his parents don't like the normal education that's, that they're getting. So the war, the Civil War. Um, the Civil War did have a profound effect on the James uh, family. Um, now, Henry is at Harvard Law School while this happens, but some of his brothers do join the war effort. Uh, so Wilkie James... He's the younger brother, and he joins in the Massachusetts 44th Regiment and later joins the 54th Massachusetts, which is the that famous early black regiment that was um, honored and, and dramat the story of, their, of this unit was dramatized in that movie Glory, right? That wonderful movie Glory. Um, Bob James, another brother, joined the Massachusetts 55th, another black regiment. All right, so there seems to be some kind of maybe abolitionist kind of uh, sentiments in the James family. Um, you know, something I need to more, 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 to, to learn a little bit more about. I think so. Maybe I should just read a biography of him, but I, I don't know if I will. But I'll keep my eyes open for for what I can learn about about Henry James. I mean, the family is just really a great story. I think it's. Um, Henry, though, he doesn't serve in the war. Uh, instead, he's, he's writing during this time, and he actually eventually quits law schools and, and just focuses on writing. He publishes his first story in 1864 in Continental Monthly, The Tragedy of Error. Uh, writes book reviews, begins his career writing criticism. Uh, his first sign story was published in 1865. Um, which around the same time that William goes with uh, Louis Agassi on his Amazon trip. So, um, after the war, in his twenties, he spends more time in Europe. He goes to goes on another European tour, and this brings us to nineteen eighteen seventy one with the publication of Watch and Ward, his first novel. So, pretty interesting life, a lot of travel, a lot of time in Europe, uh, of course, a fairly privileged upbringing, but uh, nevertheless, an interesting family with a, a lot of, a variety of careers of these, of these boys, and, and of course, creating two of the greatest intellectuals in American history. That's, that's really saying something, and then there's got to be something special about this family that it was able to do that above and beyond just the, the wealth and, and relative privilege that they were, they were born into. Um, so anyways, watch and ward, what to say about this. I, I, now, obviously it's not something Henry James would want someone who's starting to read his works, his novels to maybe start with. He, he, he actually calls Roderick Huggs in his first novel, which means he's denying entirely watch and ward. Now, it, so, it seems like the reason he did not like this book is because of its um, sentiment. It's kind of uh, over-emotionalism, and that's there. I see it. I don't think that's the biggest problem. I think modern readers reading this are kind of, there's weirder things in this, too. Um, now, our main character, Roger Lawrence, is a bit of a simp. He's he's kind of a gross, gross guy, like 
I don't know that much about middle class like courtship and courtship habits. I mean, just what I pick up in reading literature, I guess. Uh, at this time, like how the middle class people like, chose like courted girls, the courted women, got them to marry them. But this, but the the idea you get from literature is they kind of set their eye on someone and then and then kind of meet with them a few times and sort of eventually ask for marriage, um, and. And I don't know. I, I think I'll learn more about this as I read these Henry James novels, I suppose. Um, but from this modern perspective, there's something kind of almost absurd about his his love life, the, our main character's love life. And he comes off as, as a bit of a simp, actually, especially early on in the first chapter when he's kind of groveling over this this woman who's much more interesting than him. This woman is uh, Isabel Morton, who becomes a, a fairly significant character in the novel. And he's just kind of keeps asking her to marry him, and you know, and she seems much more independent and self-assertive than than he is. And now, now he's twenty-nine, so he's about the age James is when he wrote this. So James is probably like twenty-eight or, or so when he wrote this. This character starts out as twenty-nine. Now we, you know, we follow him for a number of years after this this period. He's just kind of a forgettable, bland character. And, and it's kind of disheartening because we just read Dogsworth, which also has kind of a forgettable, bland character at the, at the center of that one. Um, but this guy also adds to that. There's this, this kind of a little bit of a creepiness to him. So anyways, the, the first chapter, what happens is there's a, a man kind of comes in to, you know, into the scene, enters enters the scene and, and asks for money. He asks for like a hundred dollars from Roger Lawrence, who who can afford it. He has the money, right? And in good kind of gilded age manner, it's like you know I'm not going to give you money. You should, you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps or whatever. And so he ignores his plea for for money. Um, so anyways, then we're kind of distracted by the arrival of Isabel Morton, and he kind of goes back to flirting with her, proposing again to her, um, and she refuses him again. She says, I mean, he gets, she gets friend-zoned. He, he's, he's being friend-zoned here, and he doesn't seem to like it. She says, I shall not altogether. Um, when he says, don't answer the way you've answered before, meaning don't say no again. She says, I shall not altogether. When I've refused before, I have simply told you that I couldn't love you. I can't love you, Mr. Lawrence. I must repeat it again tonight. But I have better reasons before. I love another man. I'm engaged. So now he's completely blocked out of this this marriage. And then he kind of gets all mopey and says, I will never marry. I'm done with women. Uh, really kind of kind of a pathetic guy, right? Now, the, it turns out the room next to Roger, where he's staying, is where this, this guy who's begging for money is staying. And he kills himself, leaving behind this 14-year-old girl named Nora. And he feels this great guilt over this. He feels, so there's two things that have happened. One, he feels this great guilt over having refused this man this little bit of money that, that he didn't need and he could have given. And he kind of thinks he's the reason this man killed himself. He feels sorry for this girl who now doesn't have a father. Um, and he also feels kind of aimless because he's lost this uh, love interest. 
So anyways, I, I got interrupted there briefly. So anyways, he decides to be, to, uh, to just adopt this girl. She's 14. So he just decides to adopt her and, and raise her kind of on a whim, right? And it, it seems kind of irresponsible. I guess he's got the money to do it, but there's this kind of creepiness about it because right away we're being told by the narrator and, and by you know, Roger Lawrence himself, that he kind of wants her to kind of fill in this loss he felt because he's not getting married. And and so he's kind of almost grooming her for marriage. And that's why I think modern readers will have a hard time kind of appreciating this novel if there's anything there to appreciate. There might be. I, I'm still open-minded about it, but... It's it's hard to get beyond this 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 character and this idea. He's he's. I of course, if she was younger, if he adopted her when she was younger, it'd be unthinkable. But she's already sort of already fully formed to a degree. She does. She's not really educated, so he takes on the education. But it's um, pretty early on. He decides he's going to try to marry her, right? Um, so in the second chapter, we get really. It's a really kind of interesting exploration of education and domesticity there's like a maid an old woman who basically helps care for roger lawrence named lucida brown and she takes on some of the role of her domestic education so it's really a nice little snapshot of the separate spheres philosophy that was still so dominant in american life at the time this idea that you have uh a separate like a sphere for women domestic sphere and a sphere for men and that means you can limit what women have to learn you know to the domestic sphere and and that also kind of frees roger lawrence from having to do much to raise nora now he does give her like teaches her to read and does some other things but he kind of gets this, this exaggerated sense of himself as as a mentor and her as a protege and how he's kind of going to kind of you know help her mature and help her you know, lead her education and he's like this self like present he, he sees himself as kind of the selfless guy who sacrifices so much for this poor girl who lost her her father um so maybe this is what they're talking about when they said this is kind of overly melodramatic right there's a little it's laid on a little bit thick at times but you know it's it is what it is right So he starts to like become now she's not conventionally beautiful, you know, and it's you know, he's talking about a 14 year old in terms of their attractiveness. But she's not at the time conventionally beautiful, but she eventually grows up to be a much prettier young woman. And this is what draws kind of the attention of other suitors. And that becomes the main conflict of the novel is as she grows up, as she becomes more self-assured, more educated, becomes becomes like a middle class woman with a stipend from Roger Lawrence, she's free enough to kind of explore her own love life, right? And this breaks up the plans that, if not expressly stated, it's pretty clear they're never expressly stated by Roger Lawrence to Nora, but in the back of his head, you know, these intentions were always there and they get frustrated by the fact that these other men show up with their own interest in this young woman, right? Who, who does grow up to be you know, a fairly confident, educated, talented, and, and beautiful person. Um, now, 
he spends a lot of time away from her too. He doesn't. He's not the most hands-on kind of mentor. He likes to see himself that way. He calls her the protege quite often. But he spends a lot of time away. He he's like in Europe for a large chunk of the novel, just doing his own things, traveling about, writing letters to her, but and and giving gifts and 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 supporting her education certainly. But he's kind of aloof. Um, Now, during one of his trips, he's in uh, he's in South America, and he f- basically sort of falls in love with uh, a woman named Teresa, and he's talking to Teresa's brother, this this Peruvian uh, man, and he says, "Well, I'll read it." it says, "Well," said Roger, "I find I'm in love with your sister." The words sounded on his ears as if someone else had spoken them. Teresa's light was quenched, and she had no more fascination than a smoldering lamp smelling of oil. Why, my dear fellow, said his friend, it seems to me the reason for staying. I shall be most happy to have you for a brother-in-law. It's impossible. I'm engaged to a young lady in my own country. You are in love here, and you are engaged there, and you go where you are engaged? You Englishmen are strange fellows. Tell Teresa that I adore her and that I am pledged at home. I'd rather not see her. End quote. So he breaks up this relationship, which seems to could have gone somewhere, you know, for this fake, like, fantasy he has for this, uh, for this girl, Nora. Well, anyways, he eventually does come back, and this is where his problems begin. Um, where there's basically two suitors that, that approach him about having an interest in this in in nora the first is george fenton who's actually the cousin of of nora so he actually originally writes a letter telling him like hey i found out you adopted my 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 cousin right and you really didn't have a right to do that i mean it's it's our family and you just sort of took her in and you know i don't know how adoptions and the legal process worked there's no sense that he actually goes through much of a legal process he just starts raising this this girl that he sort of was there he didn't seem to take any effort to so i think this guy had a point this guy who wrote this letter had a point it's like you didn't even seek out like her next next of kin to see if she had any family who would take care of her you just thought you were better right so there's kind of this class element here too right because he was uh, Nora's father was like a drunk and a, didn't have a job and a, and a bit of a bum. So uh, Roger Lawrence thinks he's better for her, right? And he can raise her to be a proper woman. And and well, anyways, well, the whole time though he's thinking I, I want to marry this girl someday. Right? That's what I can't get behind. It's like a a teacher looking at a student saying, you know, like. I can't do anything now, but, you know, in a few years, maybe I'll, I'll keep her in, I'll, I'll, I'll keep her in mind. You know, it's, it's, it's gross, but I don't know. I don't want to, I mean, maybe in the standards of the time, it's, it's, it's not, but I think even then, I think even readers at the time, maybe were kind of taken aback by this. Even though it seems the biggest complaint was the, the melodramatic nature of it. And that, that's not even the worst of it, it seems to me. Now, anyways, he returns to New York and he's getting a little middle-aged. You know, he's starting to feel he's got to marry or not. 
And he has this really awkward conversation where he's trying to hint that he wants to marry her and she's like oblivious to his intentions. And she sort of, you know, just talks very innocently and casually with him and she doesn't quite get the subtext of what he's getting at. Um, but anyways, that's when these other people come. So he gets this letter from George Fenton and says that his family, he ends up hanging around and visiting Nora and, and meeting with them. And, and so she has this chance. Nora has this chance to kind of branch out and become her own person and pursue her own life, freed from her father and freed from, from Roger. And I think that's where there's potential in this novel. Is it could have been much more a novel about a, a woman who is sort of trapped in this situation where the, she's surrounded by these creepy men who are kind of groping after her, kind of finding her own way, right? But that's not the story we end up getting because she ends up marrying Roger at, after all this, right? That's the, the happy ending. And it doesn't seem like happy to me. It's, it's, it seems Nora is just sort of put in that situation as, as the only option. So anyways, you have the same kind of, well, George basically makes his move on, on Nora, who's like 16 by this point. He's trying to court her and Roger gets so offended by this and he kind of tries to block that relationship and he just is, uh, um, he's been friend zoned by, he's afraid of being, I guess, He's friend-zoned before, but he's afraid now of being kind of of losing this too at this at this point in his life. He actually tells her, Roger actually tells her, like that guy's no good. He's like scum. He's garbage, and you shouldn't hang around with him, right? And it is established that he's poor, right? This this family that Nora comes from doesn't um, doesn't seem to be a rich family, right? They don't seem to have that much wealth, and he admits it. George Fenton admits that he's not a, not a rich man, but. Anyways, that, that relationship is kind of slowed down by his very aggressive, Roger's very aggressive interference in that. Now, the second kind of suitor for Nora comes in the figure of, of actually his cousin, Roger's cousin, Hubert Lawrence, who's a preacher, who's a minister. Um, and he kind of, you know, he doesn't see her all the time, but he sees her and he's like, wow, you're so pretty now. And he becomes interested, right? So he ends up getting, you know, creeping on, on Nora a little bit. And that's going to be the second kind of threat to this, this, um, I don't know, threat, is that the right word? I don't know, it feels like that. It feels like these, like, men are kind of hovering around her, waiting, you know, waiting, instead of, like, finding women their own age. Uh, anyways, I know, like, these kind of, age gaps weren't uncommon in, in those times and but whatever I am I'm, I'm reading this with a modern mind so I guess the other subplot in the first half of this novel is has to deal with uh, Isabel Morton who who marries and she becomes uh, Mrs. Keith I think that's her name and she she's widowed at some point during this novel so she, she comes back with all this extra money from this rich husband that she inherited and she kind of takes it on herself to to help with the raising of of nora so i think that's enough i think that's enough to kind of get us started with this novel i um it's the in the in this volume it's 160 pages so 
it's like borderline one that's really i should do in two episodes so that's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna do two episodes on this and then three episodes on roderick hudson Altogether, there's going to be 11 episodes in this series covering five novels. Um, but we're going to take our time. I, I just wanted to introduce Watch and Ward to introduce uh, Henry James and, and what I'm trying to get out of this. And, and this is maybe a series where maybe many of you can help me uh, more than I can help you because I'm really kind of tiptoeing into... Uh, uncomfortable waters it's it's not a like it's like except for turn of the screw i haven't read much or really anything of, of henry james maybe a few stories um but hopefully i can do a good job and, and make some insights so in the next episode i'll finish up watching ward i'm I'll, I'll continue to kind of dig around the internet see what i can find about henry james that's interesting to talk about and and I'll finish up my thoughts about this this novel, and we'll see where it goes in the second half. So, anyways, that's going to be it for now. Uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. From our discordant life, it linked all the